I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I do. I must have heard that a version of that a hundred times as a young Christian and later on as a, as a pastor. People crying out with this, this sense of, of failure. A failure that Christians experience in battling the, the sinful impulses that seem to bubble up from within them. Wanting to do good, but instead doing the very things which they know are displeasing to God. Living day to day as if sin and the flesh were the controlling factors in their life. Big question for you this morning. Is that supposed to be the normative experience of a Christian? Is that supposed to be the normative experience for a Christian? A sense of absolute failure, wanting to do good, but instead doing the very things which they know are displeasing to God, living day to day as if the flesh and the sin are really in control. Is that the way we're supposed to be living? Most Christians are content to say, yeah, as long as we're on the earth, that's just sort of life. We might as well get used to it because that's the way it goes. And they often point to Paul's description of the struggle against sin in our passage for today in Romans chapter 7. And they they tend to use it as a defense of their own issues. And they say, well, look, if the great apostle Paul struggled with sin, well, then who am I to expect anything greater than that? This morning, I want to take a second look at this passage that we think we know so well and maybe rely upon too much. So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, this morning is going to be a little bit unusual, here's what we're going to do, Uh, next Sunday we're taking a break from our study in Romans, in fact we're taking a four week break in our study of Romans beginning next Sunday, we're going to dive into an Easter countdown series, as you know Easter is April 1st, it's coming up soon, so we're going we're gonna to do a four-week countdown plus Good Friday, and you'll hear more about that series in the coming days. I want you to know the elder team is really excited about it. What we're going to do is, is we're going to walk through a series of messages that help us to grow deeper in our understanding of Christology, to really understand who Christ is, to, to talk about some of his titles and some of the more obscure titles, some of the things you may not have really meditated upon, but to learn more about, about who he is and what he has done as our great substitute. So it's going to be a great series. But that creates some problems for us today. Here's why I bring that up. On the one hand, I don't want to just dip our toes into a passage this difficult and this complex and and then just leave it at that for four weeks. At the same time, I don't want to just rush through it and say, okay, we're good, we're done with it as well. So today what we're going to do is read a whole bunch of scripture, about 20 verses, and then we're going to do a survey of the verses you see on the screen, verses 14 to 25, and all we're going to try to do today is, is catch the context and the flow of what Paul is trying to say. To really see the big picture. Look at it from 30,000 feet and try to get an idea of what Paul is trying to say. And then after our Easter series, my promise is that we'll come back to these verses and we'll drill down much deeper. And we'll look at them in detail. Fair enough? Okay, good. Let's back up to verse 12. So let's go back to Romans chapter 7, verse 12. We'll start there. We're going to read all the way through chapter 8, verse 8. So sit tight. You have coffee? Okay, good. This, by the way, this is going to be a hard message. This is going to be a technical message. So I hope you've you got your, your uh, thinking cap screwed on. Nod your head if you do. Okay, good. 
All right, let's back up to verse 12. Again, if we're, this is a hard passage. If we're going to interpret verses 14 to 25 properly, we've got to understand it in the flow of Paul's thought. Verse 12, we looked at this last week. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Right? We talked about that last week. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, here's where we begin the really the controversial part of Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. By the way, you're getting a sense of his repeating himself for effect, right? He's, he's trying to hammer this point home. Verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Now we're going to keep reading because as we get through chapter 8 here, this is going to have a bearing on, on how we interpret verses 14 to 25. Because everything is, remember, when Paul wrote this original letter, there weren't chapter divisions, right? There weren't little verse numbers. He wasn't writing little verse numbers in there. So we have to continue to read so that we interpret this properly. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Hallelujah, right? For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot, cannot please God. Okay, now I don't, know, I don't know what you saw in that all of those verses packed together. I'm hoping that a couple things jumped off the page at you and, and maybe you begin to see more of the flow and some breaks and some, some changes in status throughout that. We'll try to explain that as we go along. Let's come back then um, and ask the question, what do we make of those verses 14 to 25? 
Go back to my original question. Did those verses describe the normal struggle that a Christian has with sin? Is that our experience? Is that supposed to be the way we're living in Christ? I'm going to make the case today that it doesn't. That verses 14 to 25 do not describe the normative experience of a Christian. I'm going to argue that for those of us who are found in Christ, for those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, Paul is not describing your struggle or my struggle in these verses. Now, of course, I'm not saying that Christians don't ever battle sin. It's obvious that we do, and the Bible tells us that we will until the Lord calls us home. But I'm going to caution you against arguing that this passage here in Romans 7 is intended to describe the Christian experience with sin. I'm already seeing some scary faces. Because in doing this, I know that I'm not following the party line. I'm, I'm sort of a rebel on this particular passage. Certainly, I'm not taking the popular position. Most evangelicals for a long time have identified this passage as a a parallel description of the typical Christian life. And it sort of feels good to see that Paul struggled with sin. It makes us feel better about our own walk and about how we feel about falling short of God's holy law. But here's a really important interpretive principle that we should all understand. Always be careful about taking your personal experience and reading it into the text. Always be careful not to say, well, I feel that way, so this must be true. The history of Christianity is filled with people who have interpreted the Bible based on what they want it to say. And that never ends well, by the way. Oh, I wanted to say this because it makes me feel better about myself. Oh, I'm sure it says this because that's what I experienced. Be really careful with that. It rarely ends well. So what I want to do today is, is, is encourage you to come at this particular text Without presuppositions, maybe set aside what you've been taught or what you you think you know about this passage, and let's follow the truth in the text itself wherever it leads. Fair enough? Okay, good. I mean, if you're not with me, we should just pray and go home. One more caveat before I dive in. This is one of the most disputed passages in all the New Testament, and there are really good scholars on both sides of this debate, really good scholars, people that I love and respect. Some of them agree with my position, others do not. They say, nope, Paul is describing a mature Christian experience in these verses. And it's interesting to go back through church history to find out which great name in in, in the past took which position. And the scary thing for me today is I'm arguing against some of the biggest names in the business, people that I love. I'm arguing against Luther. I'm arguing against Calvin. I'm even arguing against Spurgeon. I know, that one hurt, didn't it? Yeah, there goes Bree, right. That's good, Bree. Normally I would say, well done. Oh, it gets worse. I'm arguing against MacArthur. This could be pastoral suicide right here. But in my favor, in my favor, is every theologian in the first 300 years of the church. Okay, and by the way, those were the Greek fathers, the ones who spoke and wrote in Greek as their, as their mother tongue, their first language. So I, I have a little comfort in that. Guys like Irenaeus, guys like Tertullian, guys like Chrysostom, these guys took the same position that I take here today. 
even today, there's, there's really good contemporary scholars on both sides of the debate. I've been greatly influenced, I'll go ahead and say it, by a particular man, Dr. Walt Russell, who teaches at Talbot Seminary, who I, who, where I studied and who I sat under in Exegesis of Romans, influenced me greatly. Also, a guy named Doug Moo, who um, has really written, and I'll, I'll, if anybody wants to see this after church, I believe the very best commentary in the book of Romans. The very best commentary. He's influenced me greatly as well. If anybody wants to see this, it's a beast, isn't it? But it's really a fantastic work. So hear me in this. This is really important. I'm going to tell you in just a bit why I've landed where I've landed. But I am not going to be dogmatic about it. I'm not going to tell you that this is the only possibility. Meaning, if you disagree with me, I'm not going to be mad at you. Okay, we might just agree to disagree on this. There's lots of room for disagreement here. Because I know who I'm up against, all right? Just do me this favor. If you disagree with my conclusions today, disagree for the right reasons. Okay, the right reasons. Don't disagree with me because you want this passage to say something that makes you feel better about your issues. Disagree with me because you can point to several places in the text why you land in that place. Make sense? Okay, good. You ready to dive in? Let's do this. Let's start where any good exegesis should start, and that is with context. Look at verses 5 and 6 in Romans 7. Verses 5 and 6 are really, really important in getting this right. In fact, I'm going to put them up on the screen just so that you can see the emphasis here. Verses 5 and 6 are important in getting this, getting this right. Verse 5 says this, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now, you may have recognized some of that language in the passage that we read, some of the same language. And we'd all agree that when Paul writes that, what you see on the screen, he's talking about a pre-Christian experience before he came to trust in Christ, right? A time when it says we were in the flesh. And that's a key phrase. Underline or highlight that phrase, in the flesh. Paul is very fond of using that particular phrase to describe a worldly, unregenerate, or unsaved person. And he says here that when we were unregenerate, the law came in and it aroused our sinful passions. Okay, we've covered this ad nauseum recently. The law comes in and it increases sin. It aroused our passions, is what it says, and that led to our death. Now that's pretty clear, right? That's a pre-conversion experience. This was what was going on before Paul came to trust in Christ. Now, verse 6 brings a total change in status. Beginning with this all-important phrase, but now, right? Which always tells you that this is a contrast. Look at verse 6. In fact, I'll put it up here as well. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound or which we were in slavery to, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So verse 5 describes an unregenerate person, an unsaved person, but now here in verse 6 we see a regenerate person. A saved person. A saved person who's been released, it says, from what? From the condemnation of the law. We've died to that, Paul says here, right? And most importantly, we now serve God in a totally different way. Not by the oldness of the letter or the the written code, but by what? By the Spirit who lives within us. In other words, between verses 5 and verses 6, everything changes. And you see that contrast with the but now. Here's the key point that biblical scholars point to. There's a very distinct structure 
in what follows verses 5 and 6. This is what you see. The deeper you go into Romans, the more interesting, unique structure you see in, in it. So let me see if I can explain this well. Verses uh, 7 to 25 in your text are an unpacking of what Paul wrote in verse 5. Think about that. See the verse on the screen? Verse 5, Paul unpacks that in verses 7 to 25. It's a vivid description of how sin takes hold of the law and deceives us and brings death to who? People who are in the flesh. Okay? I told you this is going to be a bit technical, so track with me on this. Now, when we come to verse 6, it also gets unpacked, but it gets unpacked in chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Chapter 6, the regenerate man, is unpacked in chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. It's a description of how the Spirit gives life to those who are no longer under the law. Why? Because they now belong to Jesus Christ. So 5 and 6 are really important because Paul lays them out. He says, unregenerate, regenerate. And now I'm going to unpack both of those in the verses that follow. So that would mean that 7 through 25 describe an unsaved person struggling under the law of sin and death. And verses 1 to 17 in chapter 8 describe a Christian who's been freed from that law. Now, you may not believe me yet, but I think you're going to see that that's true as we go further along. Now, scholars on both sides of the debate agree on this. Both sides agree on this. Verses 7 to 13, which we covered last week, those verses refer back to Paul's past. His past. Back to a time before he trusted in Christ and all the verb tenses there confirm that it's in the past. All right? In fact, almost all scholars agree that Paul is partly speaking as, uh, for himself as a Jew under the law, but also partly, and this is important, partly representing corporate Israel. He's speaking as a representative of all of his brethren, Jews who lived under the law. And he's describing how he and his Jewish brethren were impacted by this life under the law. And in particular, how he says when the commandment came, it revealed sin to him. And it defined sin for him. And it it deceived him. And it provoked him to more sin. Remember how we looked at that last week? The commandment comes in. And rather than fixing his problem, what does it do? It says, by the way, this is what sin is. It defines it. It reveals it so that he knows he's sinful. And then it provokes more sin in him. Now, the law is holy and righteous. God's been really clear about that. But it doesn't bring the answer that Paul needs. Okay? Now, that's verses 7 to 13. There's no dispute between scholars on either side of this debate. It's verse 14 that changes everything. Verse 14 is absolutely key. Look at it in your text. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, Paul says, am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Look at that language. Paul defines himself here as being of flesh. Belonging to the realm of the flesh, contrasted with the law, which he says is what? Spiritual or pertaining to the spirit. This is classic Pauline writing, a classic contrast that he's drawing here. When he calls the law spiritual, all he's saying is that it's of divine origin, that the law comes from God. But he, in contrast, is fleshly. He's the opposite of spiritual. He says he is fleshly. Now, we just saw how Paul used that term in verse 5. He said, to be of the flesh means to be un 
regenerate, unsaved. And here he is saying in verse 14, I am of the flesh. Where does the flesh lead? In verse 5 it says it leads to the fruit of death. Does that sound like a believer? Then it gets worse in verse 14. Not only is he, does he say I'm of flesh, he says I'm sold into bondage to sin. He's been handed over as a slave. He's been locked into slavery to sin, he says here. Down in verse 23, he says it again. He says, I'm a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members or in the parts of my body. A prisoner of the law of sin. Does that sound like a believer? Based on what we've already studied in Romans, does that sound like a believer? Think about this. I, Paul, a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm walking in the flesh as a slave to sin. May it never be, right? That should, that should ring in your ears and you go, uh-uh, that doesn't sound right. I, Paul, a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm walking in the flesh and I'm a slave to sin. Doesn't sound right. Why? Well, remember back in chapter 6, just 17 verses earlier, Paul wrote this. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Hmm. He also wrote this. Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to who? To God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, which is what? Eternal life. Friends, that's what it means to be regenerate. That's what it means to be saved, to be a Christian. In Christ, the power of sin that once reigned over you has been broken because of him, because of what he's done for us. So if you're found in Christ, you no longer walk in the realm of the flesh. You walk in the spirit. Now you're free to obey God as a new kind of slave. Not a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And so in light of that, how can verse 14 be describing a Christian? It's an important question. Seems to me that would be confusing at best and contradictory at worst. For him to write that and 17 verses later say, really what I see is the exact opposite about himself. Now, let me share another important contextual issue here in verse 14. See, the overall structure of chapters 6 and 7 in Romans is very unique. In these two chapters, 6 and 7, there's this, there's this repeating rhythm that Paul writes in. What he does is he asks four rhetorical questions. Four questions, and each one is answered the exact same way, right? What's the answer? May it never be. Chapter 6 and 7, four questions, may it never be. And then after the may it never be, this is important, comes an explanation of why it may never be. And so let me give you the, let me give you the outline here. It starts up in 6.1. The question is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. And then he goes on to explain why it may never be in, in chapter 6, verses 2 to 14. Okay, the next group is in 6.15. The question is, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Then comes an explanation from 16 to chapter 7, verse 6. There's a rhythm here. Third one, chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? 
May it never be. And then the explanation from 7.8 to 7.12. Aha, now we arrive at the last of the four. One last question, and it comes in where? 7.13. Therefore, did that which is good, that's a reference to the law, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Guess what? The explanation of that is coming in verses 14 to 25 verses 14 to 25. And we know grammatically that verses 14 to 25 is a direct explanation of that Q&A, not just from the structure, but because of a particular conjunction that you see there, a gar in Greek or a four in the English language. You see it there at the beginning of verse 14? See the four? Whenever you see a four in scripture, you can be sure it's one of three things. It's either referring to a cause, it's explaining what was just written, Or it's a continuation of a thought. And so we have a four here. There would be no four there in verse 14 if it wasn't referring back to what Paul just said in verse 13. The point being that the question is asked in verse 13, the explanation is what follows. Verses 14 to 25. So if we want to interpret 14 to 25, we probably ought to look at the question in verse 13. And it's going to give us a clue as to what exactly he's talking about. Here's the point. Verses 14 to 25 explain how sin took something good, the law, and produced death in Paul. There is no connection to a believer's struggle with sin in that at all. The focus is still the law. All of chapter 7 is focused on the law, and in particular, its inability to transform a heart. There is no, it actually doesn't make any sense that Paul would transition into talking about his struggle as a Christian at this point because the context is all centered around the law and its inability to transform us. So to think that he suddenly switched to talking about a Christian struggling with sin, it makes no sense whatsoever. That idea, it violates everything that I've, I've been taught, everything that I've learned about grammar and context. So I've already hit you with a lot. I've got more. But that's a lot, right? But I want you to understand that I know it's technical, but understanding Paul's flow of thought, it matters here because we have to get this right. Listen, verses 14 to 25 have a direct impact on our practical theology, doesn't it? How we live our lives as Christians. So we better get this right. So let me share a couple more things that you should know. This is really important. There is absolutely no mention of the Holy Spirit in those verses. No mention of the Holy Spirit between verse 7 and verse 25. Now that seems like an obvious suggestion that the person being described in those verses isn't born again. They're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. Can you imagine Paul talking about a Christian struggling against sin and not mentioning the Holy Spirit? I can't. Right? Because who is it that, that empowers us to, to get the victory over sin? It's not our flesh. It's the Spirit. So why isn't it there? Why isn't it there? Again, in this section, Paul describes himself as being of the flesh. Remember that. And not of the realm of the Spirit. So again, how can he be a Christian? Now, it's interesting. There's an obvious turn that takes place. Look at verses 24 and 25. There's an obvious turn that takes place here, and this is Paul doing what he does so often when he writes his letters. He gets caught up in the emotion of his work, right? We see, how often do we see this? Paul just gets caught up, and he, and he blurts out this great praise. He does it here. 
Who will set me free from the body of this death? It's as if he's been writing this and going, oh my gosh, who's going to free me from this mess? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then at 8.1, you see this significant change, right? Probably my favorite verse in the entire New Testament. There is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a significant change here, right? That is what marks the change in Paul's subject matter. 8.1, he's done talking about the law and its inability to change us. That was his whole focus in chapter 7. Now when he gets to 8.1, he's repeating the remedy for our problem. The, the law couldn't transform us, but he's saying it's your union with Christ. And he's been harping on that, hasn't he? The union with Christ, being in Christ Jesus, makes all the difference. It happens at 8.1. So according to verses 14 to 25, for those under the law, there is what? Frustration and defeat and failure and sin and death. But according to 8.1, those in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. A clear break in the way that Paul's approaching this thing. And here's the kicker. Just to add more evidence on top of that, again, how many times is the Holy Spirit mentioned in verses 14 to 25? Zip, zero, nada, whatever you want to use. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit, get this, is mentioned 15 times in just the first 16 verses. The subject matter is clearly changed. The contrast between chapter 8 and this passage in chapter 7 is incredibly stark. I'm convinced that it marks out the very difference between life in the flesh and life in the spirit, being a slave to sin and being a slave to God. It's very stark. Here's the second thing that that strikes me as I look at this. What I see in verses 14 to, to 25 is total defeat. I see total defeat, Paul describing here. Is that our experience? Is that what we're told our experience in Christ should be? To just get whooped every day? So many Christians throughout church history have identified with the despair of the man in these verses especially his inability to do what he knows he should be doing. And I totally get that. As Christians, we're all deeply aware of our continuing sinfulness, or at least we should be, and the many ways that we fall short because we want so badly to please God. We should be aware of that. But when I read these verses, all this sounds to me is total frustration and defeat. Total frustration. It looks like captivity to the power of sin. And that is not... Not what Paul describes as the normal experience for a Christian. Not in any of his letters. Certainly not in chapter 6 of Romans and definitely not in chapter 8 of Romans. A life of of just getting your, your tail whooped by sin. Just frustration and anger and crying out, I'm so wretched. It's not how he describes it. In fact, jump ahead just for a moment. Go, go to Romans 8.2. He says it right in 8.2. Paul writes, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. There's no condemnation. You've been set free. That type of freedom doesn't seem to me to be present in verses 14 to 25. Listen, as Christians, we are promised real and observable victory over sin. Did you know that? That's what we're promised. We're not promised defeat and captivity. Now, I'm not saying we'll ever be perfect. 
this side of heaven. That would be a lie. But we will see signs of a progressive growing in victory. Why? Because we, we've been showered with grace and we've been given the spirit to empower us, the spirit of grace who empowers us to get the victory. Did God not promise that he would complete the work that he began? Do we doubt that? Bottom line, if verses 14 to 25 is describing the Christian life, it sounds bleak and miserable to me. That life looks bleak and miserable. The hopelessness that we see in those verses is just not found in any other New Testament passage when talking about sanctification. If that's Christianity, it stands alone amongst all the letters in the New Testament. Is the battle real? Yes. Is it hopeless? Absolutely not. When we were living in the flesh, unregenerate and unsaved, folks, we would do well. If you're sitting here today and you're not, you haven't trusted in Christ and you're just checking things out, you're not sure why you're here, you're like, what's this guy talking about? Okay? If you're not saved, you would do well to cry out as Paul cries out here, wretched man that I am, who will save me? If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you should be crying out that way. If you're found in Christ, that is not your cry. You are not wretched in Jesus Christ. Do you hear me with that? You are not wretched in Christ. Once you were wretched, when you were dead in your sins and transgressions, now you're a child of God. Now you're alive and free in him. Now, I'm not going to hit you with anything more because that's enough. But if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I still don't agree. Because you've been taught something different, I know exactly what you're thinking. You're like, Jeff, you're stacking the, stacking the box here, right? You're only giving evidence for your side. And that's true. I get, I get the pulpit. <laughs> so, <laughs> But no, in all fairness, I don't have a lot of time to do this, but let me, let me share with you probably the two primary reasons why scholars would come here and say, Jeff, you're off base. I don't think they're, they're convincing enough, they're weighty enough, but I'll share them with you so that, so that you understand both sides of the, the debate. Number one is this. There is a very distinct change in the verb tenses beginning in verse 14. Okay? In verses 7 to 13, what we covered last week, Paul used past tense verbs. Beginning in verse 14 and running throughout this passage up to 25, he switches to present tense verbs. And the logical conclusion would be that he is now switched from speaking about his life in the past to his present situation as a mature Christian. And I get that. And that's, that's probably the main reason that, that scholars usher a different conclusion. But here's the thing. Greek scholars will tell you that the present tense doesn't always designate present time. I'm going to give you an example of that in a second. The temporal nature of any action is first and foremost discerned by the context. Since present tense verbs, even in the indicative, can be used in a reference to the past. So context is the first and foremost thing that would control before the verb tense. In the case of verses 14 to 25, the tense of the verbs don't emphasize time at all. They fit better with the state or the condition of the author. You may have to re-listen to that to, to double check me on this. But it's true. What Paul is doing here is using, now scholars call this the historic present or the dramatic present. 
Meaning this, he's putting himself into the position of another person in the past in order to bring the scenario alive for his audience. He's speaking on behalf of another in the past in order to make this discussion vivid and alive. And by the way, that's a technique you see all the time in secular Greek writings. We do this in English too, by the way. Have you ever recounted a past story in the present tense? Think about that. You've told a story from your past, but you've done it in the present tense. We do this in English all the time. In fact, I I was thinking if I was going to share my testimony with somebody about how I came to know Christ, I'd have to go back to my college days. But I could describe it like this. It's 1984. Isn't that funny? 1984 is when I got saved. Orwell loves it. It's 1984. I'm living in a fraternity house at UCLA. Present tense. And this guy joins the house and he begins to pray for me. And I see that he's living a different kind of life from everyone else. So I go up to him and I say, what's with you? Now, I won't continue the story. Many of you guys know the story of how I got saved. I just told a past story in the present tense. Why? To make the story more real. I'm putting myself into that scenario. So we do this in English as well. Bottom line here is this. The verb tense evidence, in my opinion, and other people disagree, is not strong enough by itself to overcome the problems that come out of the context of the passage. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a good argument. I get it. But I think there's ways to, to, uh, to mediate the argument. And I don't think it overcomes the problems in the language and the context when Paul says, I'm of the flesh and I'm in bondage to sin. I don't think it overcomes it. That's number one. The second one is this. It comes from verse 22. If you look at verse 22, some say this. How can an unregenerate man joyfully concur or delight in God's law in the inner man? Only a believer can do that. Okay? Further, they say, an unregenerate man doesn't desire to do what is good or right. And he certainly doesn't hate his sin. And so this must be a believer because he's sensitive to those things. And those are really good observations. And they're definitely a challenge to my interpretation. But I still think they fall short. Here's why. It comes down to the type of man that Paul is describing here. Who is this I? When he writes I, 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 in 14 to 25, who exactly is this I? What type of man is Paul describing here? I'm going to put it on the screen. And, and I, think this is, I think this is accurate. Here's who he's describing. Paul's looking back at his situation. And other Jews like him. And unregenerate people living and struggling under the law. Okay, so again, he's writing just as he did above, by the way, in verses 7 to 13. He's writing both with his personal experience in mind, but also in solidarity of his Jewish brothers. Because they all experienced this, didn't they? Under the Mosaic Law. They all experienced this together. The key is, is what you see on the screen here. Paul is looking back at his experience as an unsaved Jew with an enlightened view now because he's now a Christian. You got to think about that for a second. Okay, he's talking about his time of being an unsaved Jew, but he's looking back at it from his present Christian understanding. Why does that matter? Because he's writing to prove something, how useless the law was to deliver both himself and his brothers from sin and death. Paul had walked that road himself, hadn't he? 
He had once lived under the law, right? And guess what? He believed that he was righteous in persecuting the church. In Philippians 3, he calls himself blameless according to the law, right? But now, so now he's describing this futile struggle of his brothers, but he's looking at it from a Christian perspective. All of that frustration of striving for every iota and every dot of the law. And now he writes about it from his new vantage point of life in Christ. Here's how that figures into the interpretation now. If Paul is writing in solidarity with the Jewish people, of course he could say, I delight in the law. Did you hear that? If he is writing both for himself and on behalf of his Jewish brothers, yes, he could say, I delight in God's law. Why? Because every Torah-observing Jew loves God's law. You go to Israel today, you talk to the Orthodox, do you love the law? Oh, yeah. They've devoted their life to it. That doesn't mean they know God, but they love his law. And, and, and again, this is a practical example. He's, he's, he's saying, look, every, every Torah-observing Jew would say this. In fact, last Sunday I shared the story of the rich young ruler in the Gospels, right? He's another perfect example. Here was a man who said, I have kept all the commandments. Do you doubt that he would say, hey, rich young guy, do you love God's law? Oh, yeah, I delight in it. Absolutely. He would say that in a flash. But we know from Jesus' challenge that he wasn't saved. So is it possible in 14 to 25 that Paul is describing a Torah-observing Jew who in his inner man, his mind, yeah, I concur with God's law, but he doesn't, still doesn't know God. And he's actually not saved. Paul testifies to this later. We'll get to it in Romans 10. He says that his fellow Jews have a zeal for God. And that would certainly include a zeal for his law, right? But they don't have knowledge. They don't have a saving knowledge. They have zeal without knowledge. They have a delight in God's law, but they're not saved. That's what I think Paul's describing here in verses 14 to 25. Now, maybe you'd object and you'd say, well, that type of Jew wouldn't struggle like Paul does in these verses. He wouldn't even know the evil within him. And I agree. But that's exactly the point. Paul is looking back as a Christian now and interpreting his experience under the law. Does that make sense? Here's an illustration that might help. This is for Scott Roundtree. <coughs> he said he might be asleep by this, but so. You know, my favorite football commentator is Troy Aikman. Anybody else? He does NFL games on Fox. To me, he's the smartest commentator out there. Now, Aikman was a fantastic quarterback in his days. Who did he play for? Dallas Cowboys. How many Super Bowls did he win? Three. I believe he won three Super Bowls. Oh, by the way, he also went to UCLA. Just saying. <coughs> Bonus points. I want you to imagine him now calling a game and down on the field is a rookie quarterback. Here's a guy with 12 seasons under his belt, incredibly successful, three Super Bowls, but he's now the guy with a whole new perspective on what it means to play football and in particular to play quarterback. Now imagine him putting himself into the shoes of that rookie on the field and telling the audience watching what's happening down there. Think about that. 
I mean, that's why we want a commentator, right? Somebody who has experience. He says, look, I, I, I've got, I had a perspective as a quarterback at one point because I played the game. But guess what? Now that I'm older and I'm in the commentating box, I have a much fuller and richer perspective on all of it. He says, but let me tell you what's going on in that rookie's head right now. Let me tell you what's going on down there on the field. That's what we're talking about. Paul was once on the field, living under the law, struggling just like that. Now he's got a much richer and fuller perspective on life because he's found in Christ. But he can still describe what he used to go through and talk about how they delight in God's law and talk about how this, this evil, this struggle that they went through because he has a much bigger perspective. Does that help? I hope so. Is that good, Scott? Thank you. All right, before I wrap up, let me just repeat what I said at the outset. Because I'm, I'm, as I go through all this, I'm, I'm a little bit of afraid for you guys. Um, I'm not saying that Christians don't struggle with sin. Do not walk out of here going, I'm the only one who struggles. I am the lone ranger of struggling. And everybody else has, you know, this victory over sin and it's just me. It's not what I'm saying. We are all in this battle together. I'm only saying that when you're going to argue about the struggle over sin between the flesh and the spirit, Romans 7 is not the best place to go to. There are other places in the New Testament. And here's my promise. When we come back in five weeks and we go into this more in detail, we're going to look at some of those passages that do describe our struggle in the flesh as Christians. And hopefully we'll learn something from that. Make sense? Is that okay? So is there, did everybody hear me clearly? Good. In the meantime, two quick and very simple application points that we can take away from this. Number one is this. Let this passage remind you of your past. Let this passage remind you of your past. There was a time... Every person in this room who knows Christ, there was a time when you were unable to understand why you were making the choices you were making. There was a time when you were unable to to do the good that you wanted to do. There was a time when you were, for some reason, choosing self-destructive things, doing the very things that you hate. There was a time when every Christian in this room was living as a prisoner to the law of sin. We can't forget that, right? We don't dwell on that because that's not our identity, but we cannot forget that. Let those truths cause you to come and to bow down in worship of Jesus Christ who has rescued you from those things. Let it lead you to worship, to joyfully acknowledge that he has delivered you from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit, from darkness to light. Let it it lead you to worship. Number two... Let this passage serve as a warning that laws and rules will never deliver us from the power of sin. Again, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, but you're like, I'm going to go out this week, I'm motivated, I'm going to try my best, and I'm going to meet all those rules and and laws and and obligations, it ain't going to work. It's not going to work. Those rules, those laws, they can't transform you. What they can do is make things worse in your life. So that's the choice before you. I can let these rules and regulations, because, man, that, it doesn't have what the world thinks of the Bible. It's just filled with rules and regulations. So the choice before you is I can let these rules and regulations stir up more sin in you, or you can allow these rules and regulations and the law to point you to the Savior. That's the choice before you. Praise God that we've been delivered from that type of legalism. 
where it's about rules and regulations. Praise God that we can live and breathe and walk in light of his grace now. Not to misuse his kindness to fulfill the desires of the flesh, but to now live in a relationship with our Savior apart from guilt and shame. It's not what he wants for us. We're not wretched like that. We live in light of his grace. And when we do stumble, what do we do? 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're not to wallow in guilt and shame. Now we can serve him. Now we've been freed to become a slave to righteousness. Now we can serve him with the proper motivation from a heart of gratefulness. That's what your Savior has done for you. I can't wait to come back and touch on this some more in five weeks. Will you come back? Awesome. Let's pray. Lord willing, let's pray.